I want to welcome you to the Love First podcast this evening, and I want to thank uh, Dr. Dietra for joining us this evening. We are going to talk about having dinner together. Now, I want you to think with me for a few moments about the most enjoyable dinner you've had recently mm-hmm. or the least enjoyable. I want you to think about that dinner that when they called you about an hour in advance, you were hoping they would were calling to cancel. We know what this means because we know that when we go to dinner with someone, it's different than grabbing a bite to eat. We know there's an investment that we're going to have conversation. And no one understood that better than Jesus. He knew that over a table, the world could be transformed. So this evening, we're going to dip into our courageous conversation centered around the work that Dr. Dietra has been doing in these table conversations. If you are new to the Love First podcast, we are here to catalyze courageous conversations, to revolutionize the way we love. If you are returning, thank you for liking, subscribing, and sharing. And let's dive in to this conversation. Love first, I know. Lord, take control. Love first in my soul. So, Dr. Dietra, thank you for joining us this evening. We're so thankful that you are here. And I would love for our listeners to get to know you a little bit. So, would you mind telling us uh, a little bit about your journey and how you got involved in seeing dinners as a way to transform communities? Um, first, just thank you for inviting me to be part of this conversation and for doing the work that you're doing to uh, raise the importance of having this conversation and thinking about this from a spiritual place. Yes. Uh, I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee, and uh, I live here now in Georgia. A big part of how my journey here is growing up in a town called Whitehaven and going to school in Germantown um, and knowing that there was really a a divide. Um, Also that, you know, this was the community that Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated and that's where I grew up. And so in my my own journey in this own uh, family, I really have taken to heart that I had to be part of the change and that I had to learn how to have courageous conversations with people Mm. and that I was called um, really I would say to be a healing presence of God that's been part of my own personal journey uh, as a black Catholic um, in a community where there were only three black Catholic churches um, for a while and uh, we learned how to come in and have conversations and talk about Mm. our faith uh, in a way that was very joyful yeah and uh, I know in some places Catholics can be very stoic. So it's a there's a whole other you know kind of component to this. Uh, but I a lot of what I've done has been related to that. And I loved how you said that you know Jesus really understood um, the importance and the beauty of the breaking of the bread yeah, uh, and the sharing. And so for me, uh, this is part of how I've come to be doing this work. And uh, both as a clinical psychologist as well as a community person trying to help heal our community. Yes. 
I love that. I noticed that uh, on your website, you mentioned uh, Memphis and your love of dance. I love that. <laughs> I, I thought everyone should know that Dr. Dietra also loves dance, right? Because yeah. we have a tendency, do we not, to look at someone and think, oh, well, you know, that person uh, is a PhD. That person holds a clinical uh, faculty position at Yale University. Yeah. <laughs> and when we start hearing those things, we start boxing people in. And mm -hmm. I, I just love that note. Tell us, uh, if you don't mind, tell us a little bit about your uh, your the, the confluence of your formal educational journey as you were doing your dissertation, right? Mm -hmm. And these ideas were already emerging in you. And then how you kind of moved through that to take the clinical side and the academic side and bring it to the streets of Decatur. How did that happen? So you're asking me to kind of condense 20 years of work, but uh, I'll figure out like, some ways to bring some, some of these pieces in. Yes. And there's no timer on that. Yes. Um, so to start off with, I really found that people um, would find a way to talk with me and uh, want to talk with me in random places in the park and play and such. And so I felt like I had to find a way to be able to talk and work with people. Mm. But I also was really interested in uh, what I call a black rage, you know, just a, a lot of anger in, in my own community um, and wanted to find a way to help have conversations. Uh, I ended up in Chicago for my doctoral training yeah. And um, in Chicago, got to be part of a what's called the, the Human Relations Foundation, which is transitioned mm -hmm. to the Jane Addams Hull House and some other places. But as part of a, a research study looking at the racial tensions in the city of Chicago, and that led me to understand uh, that they had to have a number of different things to address 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 the racial mm -hmm. tension in the city uh, of Chicago. And one of those events was called the Chicago Dinners event. So I was looking for something to study um, that I could finish and they were good <laughs> enough to work with me uh, <laughs> to do that. And so I got to talk with people and go actually participate in these uh, events. And that really led me to understand that bringing people together, I was when I studied the dinners, I was expecting something really like phenomenal and, you know, was looking at all these like factors and that sort of thing. And then really learned that the most important thing was people showing up, uh, that this was uh, strangers who were going to someone's home to have dinner in a part of town that maybe they wouldn't ordinarily go to. And that was really most important is that people actually showed up and that that was courageous. Uh, and I now, even now, 20 years later, it's probably the most compelling thing to, to think about. And so we've had opportunities in my work. Um, I work with a number of different people in the recovery field. So people who have a mental health or substance use um, history that are doing better and are using their lived experience and their hope to inspire and support others, that that hope and, and work has also informed my own work. Some of our dinners have taken place in recovery centers. 
Uh, we have had opportunities to talk about, um, it's more than just academics. So I, I like to tell people that if we could think our way through all of this, we already would have done it. That's right. But we have to feel, you know, we, we have to connect. And many of us through food, uh, through music, through movement, which is part of where I came into almost everything. My own personal wellness has been in movement and dance and art. Uh, so I bring all of those components into how I understand healing needs to take place and having people come together over food um, or really just come together to have a conversation because we've now moved to virtual uh, yeah. platforms for these dinners. This is part of how I've, I've been doing this work. So the Decatur dinners was an amazing um, development that really took place over nine months. So we had some kind of event every month. And that led up to that um, one night on August 25th, where over 1,200 people in very small, uh, various places uh, where I was, I had 50 people at a restaurant and all divided into small little groups having a conversation and mixed with people who were interested. It was an amazing energy of people seeking a way to connect and to know that maybe their story um, wasn't the only story. And, mm -hmm. and maybe there is a place that someone was willing to hear their story. So both, you know, hearing another person's story and having someone really sit and be willing to hear yours is really, it's really powerful. And it's, yes. it's what I walk away with. I don't re always remember people's names, but I remember the stories. And many of us are like that. We remember those stories. Yes. And something that's really touched me about your work, um, your both and work is there's this realization that yes, there's a web that comes together, right? With your work because you're mm -hmm. constantly collaborating, but that same web could be tracked out into communities where the recovery community can embrace these approaches and find yes. great understanding and so on. And this particular thing in the Decatur dinners, started with, uh, if I remember right, some school teachers, or at least a school teacher, mm -hmm. looking at some things in the school district and thinking, this can't be the best we can do. Mm -hmm. But the solution, like you said, if we could have thought our way through the solution, we'd have been done with we'd it. Be there. The solution required <laughs> something more. And yeah. of all things, addressing a school district and an educational issue required a dinner. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And that really, that really moved me. I also thought it was fascinating that the number of people that actually courageously showed up far exceeded the initial planning estimates. And, uh, and I thought that was very, uh, very exciting. We, yeah. we, we want to step just for a second. And I want us to think out loud about what we said in the beginning, because one of the things we see in the ministry of Jesus mm -hmm. is that across these dinners, he's not just changing individual lives, but he's addressing systemic things. So true. It, it's always happening. It's, it's mm -hmm. not one or the other. It's right. <laughs> touching this person's life, Zacchaeus, you know, going mm -hmm. to dinner at Zacchaeus's house. And then suddenly Zacchaeus is transformed in his taxation, you know, yeah. Uh, what are some ways that you see dinners as a way to help people heal, 
but also to transform systems. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things I love about doing the dinners is that it's not a training. Um, and because it's not a training, what we're there's this experience of realizing that people can come together. I say this all the time. People can come together, uh, use their forks to eat and not hurt each other. And so, you know, when uh, I talk with people who come to dinners, I've had a woman recently at one of the dinners who at the very end of it said, I was just amazed that people could sit down and talk to each other because in her family, people got food, watched TV. They, they didn't talk with each other and then really have that important conversation. Um, if we can have that conversation in a regular way, that's not a training, then that means it can impact everything that we do. Yes. You know, we might stop and say hello to our neighbor. Um, many of these events that I've done over years, people have come together and they'll be at a dinner table and they'll say, you know, I've never, this is the first time I've been in my neighbor's home for dinner. Like I've said, you know, we've we've greeted our children at the bus stop. We've done, you know, things we wave to each other, but actually coming into someone's home changes us in a in a very different kind of way. So I love that it's it's about an ordinary thing. It's not, um, you know, it's not just school. So when you were talking about the the cater dinners and and how that came together, there were many different groups that were coming together. And everyone was starting to have this conversation about we need to do something and then we want to connect. So there were lots of groups that were um, having a training here, churches that were doing this here, um, the HUD community doing some things and the school also doing some things. But it wasn't connected yet. And so this was a way where um, police officers with teachers, with parents were all at a table together. As people, yep, you know, which is just such a different, you know, space to be in. Um, And then it helps you have stories because now we're we're not just coming together; we're coming together and we're sharing our personal stories. Mm. We're not coming and sharing um, a definition. We're not coming and sharing facts. We're sharing our personal stories, and we know that, right? That that's what changes us. So then when we're in our day-to-day or maybe when we see someone on the street, we don't necessarily cross to the other side because we're willing to maybe give them a chance, like look them in the eye, maybe smile a little bit differently. Yes. Yes. You know, something that a lot of people are afraid of is, man, what if we show up for dinner and then, you know, we just stare at each other across the table, you know, but you did some things to help navigate that and to get them yeah. rolling and some some things most people would recognize like you had a facilitator at each mm-hmm. table to help it get moving and most people would be like oh yeah 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 we know how to do that but you yeah. did something so <laughs> awesome with art with yeah. drama can you tell us about how the one act play came about and why that was so important to the success of these dinners. Well, we have learned over the years that the dinners kind of have a particular flow. Um, And we had an opportunity with Out of Hand Theater. Um, Actually, I went to one of their their events that they would do art in people's homes. 
Um, and I was really moved by Minka Wilkes uh, and the play that she did, Shaking in the Wind, yes. with how beautiful it was in this very intimate setting, you know, 20, 30 people in someone's living room watching this play. And it afterwards, we all wanted to talk. Now, of course, I know how to help people have the conversation to talk. And so we saw this as a natural collaboration mm -hmm. to bring the facilitation in, to bring a model that says, let's have a dinner party. And then to have the art of a very um, uniquely curated play and um, that we all had a, a part actually in helping to develop. Mm -hmm. And uh, because it couldn't be too long and it had to kind of be one person. And at the time for Decatur, we had to be able to have one actor <laughs> be able to do this. And uh, it had to be flexible enough. But the really what's neat about having the play is that it allowed um, people to get to an emotional place first. And we've learned with either a play, sometimes we use a spoken word artist, um, and some of our dinners now that we're doing virtually start off with someone actually just performing a few musical pieces mm -hmm. and, um, and then sharing a poem. Mm -hmm. And then that just helps us kind of get outside of our, um, our very intellectual parts of our brains and, and get to the heart place because that's where change happens. Change for all of us is really when we feel it. We have to feel heard. Mm -hmm. We have to feel that we connect to someone else. Yes. It's not a, it's not an intellectual thing. So we try to create a space for that. And that's why now, even without the food, it's still a very impactful um, experience. Yes. And if I understood correctly, um, there was a person to perform the brief play at yes. each meal, yes. at each location, I mean. Yes. Right? That yes. had to be amazing. And if I remember right, Kind of the way that it concluded was uh, the the play is I didn't know what to do so I kind of came to dinner with you. Yes, inviting people into that story, which mm -hmm. of course allows people to evoke uh, yeah. their own story. When you when you think about the uh, nine months leading up to it, mm -hmm. how would you uh, encourage other people? People are listening and they live all over the country. And they're thinking, oh man, I want to do that. Okay. I can go to Dr. Dietra's website. I can, you know, I can go to Decatur's dinner, you know, I.org. I can do that. But how did they, how did it get rolling? So mm -hmm. can you give us a little bit of a, an idea if you were doing this in another town right after the podcast and people were organizing, how would you uh, kind of what steps would you encourage them to take to get that movie? Well, one of the first things that we encourage people to do is um, find a couple people who are interested and get on a call with us um, because that's where we, we kind of get this growing. I've recently been working with a group in Cleveland and um, we're pretty much at our nine month uh, marker as well. We've been meeting weekly um, for the last six months or so. And we've been having virtual dinners and they've crafted it in their own kind of way. But basically whatever community it is, it becomes your community and that dinner. Uh, and you just need a few people. The uh, ideal dinner size is no more than eight people. Mm -hmm. And uh, you don't have to have a thousand. You know, we want right. to encourage people 
to call and to say, hey, I'm interested. Um, join and check out. There's a group here in Atlanta called Equitable Dinners. They've been doing a version of these as well virtually. And people can sign on. They're held every third uh, Sunday. And, and we've got uh, one coming up, right? Yes, there's one coming up very soon. Um, and the Cleveland group is having theirs every second Sunday of the month. Um, so those will be starting back up actually in uh, February of 2021. So, you know, definitely just look for um, places, reach out to us, um, talk to other people about it. We've got a few um, uh, videos that help people get an idea of what it's like. You don't have to necessarily have uh, a play especially if your community resonates more with music or going to an, a, a museum together. There's all these virtual, wonderful museum visits that people can go on now, you know. That's so right. there's a lot of different ways in which we can get connected. And the first thing I would just say, kind of connected to what I said before, is that it's really about showing up mm-hmm. uh, and, and making that commitment to go ahead and show up and ask the question. You don't have to have... Um, your most, you know, staunch person who you want to convince to participate, you want to have the people who are kind of leaning forward. Mm. And that's what we found with the Decatur dinners and some of the others that we've done is that we need to create an opportunity for people who are kind of listening, you know, uh, who are interested. And I think about, I think about ministry and that this is a way of creating healing Yes. And we don't have to get it all right, you know, because yeah. I think what happens is people feel like they have to have it so perfect. And what's going to happen if somebody gets upset? You know, what's going to happen if nobody talks? What's going to happen? And so what we try to say is, you know, talk with us so we can help you. It's nice to have someone who kind of knows what to do <laughs> and then just uh, have a little bit of guidance along the way. Because it is, it, there are a little, there are some things to be mindful of, but it's not at all hard. If you've ever thrown a dinner party, you can do this. You bet. I love that. So in your work, uh, I'd like to expand this out a little bit because sure. in your work, you work with communities, but you also work with corporations and educational systems. And you mentioned recovery already. Yeah. How do you translate some of this conversational work into Mm -hmm. a business or into uh, uh, an institution, into a church? How Mm -hmm. do you kind of translate that into those moments? Well, one of the things that we're kind of known for is being very intentional. So everything is by design, right? Um, And because of my background as a psychologist, I tell people I don't necessarily do what I was trained to do. In the sense that um, we as psychologists have often been trained to listen to people, but also try to listen for what's not being said. Mm -hmm. And what I've learned in working with communities is I need to just listen and believe. Mm -hmm. Um, And so when we're working with organizations to create policy, to think about recruitment, to think about retention, to think about um, how you work with your boards, there are questions and ways that we need to engage your end user at the very beginning. And so all of our work is really about asking critical questions and being really curious to listen deeply and to help the community or the organization or the leader listen a little bit more deeply 
to who they're actually trying to help. And that's part of our magic is just saying, having that exchange from the very beginning, being very intentional from the very beginning and thinking about how we can be rooted in our why and then talk about the things of like, how are we going to put it in place before we get into what's the money? What are the policies? How, you know, how realistic is this? If we Mm. can build it off of a question that I ask, what's worked here? What's made a big difference? And what keeps people feeling hopeful? We have some guiding questions. Those in themselves very simply help us do amazing work with organizations that might be one or two people, the organizations of 10,000, you know? Yes. And I noticed that one of the things that people uh, highlight from their experience with you is the astounding way that you use appreciative inquiry right from the the jump, uh, (laughs) rather than coming in and uh, helping someone further diagnose what's wrong with them. um, You help them build on the things that are good and possible and hopeful, (laughs) but something else that I'm hearing in here, I'm, I'm hearing an echo of participatory research, right? That you are bringing the end user voice right up on the front end, which changes the conversation Mm -hmm. uh, greatly. What led you to the place where you said, Hey, if we can't hear the voices that are going to be impacted why are we having this conversation? How did you how did you move into that uh, in your work? Well, I started off as a researcher in health disparities and um, really learned a lot about what those disparities were. We we knew a lot about who wasn't getting help and what was getting in the way and how easy it was for let's say a black woman like myself to go to the doctor and say, this is what's going on with me. And the doctor really not to hear me and to say, well, as a black person, you can uh, handle pain better, all of these different things. So we know a lot right now about what gets in the way. What I've learned is that if we only learn that, it doesn't get us to a solution. And so I really made a commitment um, in my work to try and leave things better than I find them, right? Um, to from the very beginning and by just helping people ask a different question, um, helping people when I first meet them, learn to listen to themselves and each other a little bit better, learn to tell a story, that in itself starts to shift and it leaves people better than uh, me giving them facts or, you know, a a tool Um, because really, you know, I don't know, I think in some ways, we're, we have to know that we have what we need inside of us, yeah. right? Yeah. That um, we've been blessed and God has given us what we need. Yeah. Um, yeah. And if we can stop and connect to those things, if we can connect to our better yeah. selves, then we, we really have what we need to move forward. But it's creating enough space to connect to that and to give someone else the space to do that too. Mm. Mm. You have, um, you lean into, uh, you know, the resilience, uh, helping in community resilience and personal resilience. How do you, when you're doing this work, 
uh, maybe you can see the possibilities before others can, right? So you're you're kind of knowing good things are ahead, but people are losing their steam or they're mm-hmm. facing frustration. What do you say to people who who might, if they could butt into this conversation right now, they might say, Dr. Dietra, I love you, but I'm so frustrated and my community mm-hmm. isn't like your community and mm-hmm. I tried and it didn't work. What do you say to the person who really, really wants to make a difference mm-hmm. and feels like that maybe they're hitting their head against the wall or or they just feel defeated? How yeah. would you encourage that person? Well, I, to begin with, I really want to just acknowledge and be grateful that they brought the question, you know, and that they have shared that they're concerned and that they've been trying. Um, I think that sometimes we don't thank people enough for being honest about how frustrated they are um, and that they're willing to say it. (laughs) How many people do you know nod and go, "Uh uh uh-huh, 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 and then they don't come back? Yep. I don't tell you what they're really worried about. So I want to have people tell me first, and I thank people for that, for that, that honesty. Sometimes in our trainings, we talk about compassionate listening Mm-hmm. And a skill in compassionate listening is to thank people for their candidness, to really um, welcome that into the door. So that that's one mm-hmm. thing that I want to acknowledge to start off with. Mm-hmm. And the other is that we often have not taken a lot of time to focus and learn, have the story be told about, well, why was it that you tried that thing that you said you tried? You know, what was it that was motivating you? Yeah. Um, what's the story behind it? Why did you get into this work to begin with? Mm. Right. So all of us had a reason for showing up. So I can ask that question of a police officer. You know, there is some story that it has some passion behind it for why you wanted to get into this to start off with that you would risk your life mm. for people. Right. Mm. Um, for a teacher in the same kind of way. So we can get tap into that first yes then that helps me and will help them be able to have the resilience to push forward when you have the natural um things that happen that get in our way yeah yeah now when we think about the decatur dinners now moving forward um in the podcast here we're going to show a brief clip of those dinners And uh, our producer, Nolan, uh, has done a phenomenal job with uh, helping us on the podcast. But Nolan also worked with you Mm -hmm. uh, in doing some video of the dinners. And so we're going to show a clip of that right now. Well, it's something about food. When, when people are having food and they're sharing a meal, for some reason, the walls come down. Meals are synonymous for a lot of people with comfort. They're synonymous with family, uh, love. And so I think that that's a good foundation for whatever is about to occur, and especially uh, a conversation that that could be as challenging as as race, especially in this time and space that we live in right now. 1,200 people gathered in 120 homes to share a meal and discuss racial equity. Like most U.S. cities, Decatur has a deeply complex history of racism and racial progress. 
After the Civil War, freed slaves ushered in a brief era of racial progress as they founded new churches in the courthouse square. As Jim Crow seized back control, the city enacted racial zoning laws that pushed all black residents to the Beacon Hill neighborhood. The county also carried out at least four lynchings between 1887 and 1945. By 1950, black residents ushered in another brief period of racial progress. In Beacon Hill, black-owned businesses were thriving as the community formed and grew. But in 1961, a federal quote-unquote urban renewal policy allowed the city to demolish Beacon Hill and relocate all the black residents. By 1970, nearly 40% of Decatur's population was black. White flight drove property values down just long enough for gentrification to sweep in. And by 2010, gentrification, lack of affordable housing, and income inequality worked together to drive the black population down to 19%. The inequities that exist in Decatur today can be directly linked to this brief history and these policies. Today, black Americans make up 21% of Decatur's population, but 69% of the population below the poverty line. Inequities like that are what 1,200 people talked about at dinner on August 25th, 2019. The dinner table is, a, it's almost a sacred space, right? So when you gather with people, even if they're not people that you know intimately, and you gather around food, it is safer. If I'm dining with someone, it puts me in a much more receptive mood. And so what you've got is essentially these layers where this conversation can be given and received in a much more open format. You know, I'm a little bit on the nerd side and I really like the brain. Um, and I like to tell people that, you know, the deeper parts of our brains have no words. So we have to have things that we do, not so much what we say. And so the more we sit and we eat, we see a performance that moves us, you know, you sit across from someone and their story touches you. When you're able to, you know, move together, which is what happens when we sit and we nod and we look at each other, that's what makes change happen. the stories that we live by that actually make a difference in what we do every day. Stories are powerful, so when we talk about something and we tell a story, you're trying to find something to connect to me and my story. If I give you statistics, you probably wouldn't remember, but if I tell you that one time I had stage four cancer and I only had 20% chance to live, which was actually so, then you would probably remember that the next time. I think it's a brilliant question. That honestly is one of my personal frustrations. Nothing's gonna change tomorrow, two months, probably two years from now. What occurs is you do this, hopefully, you do this and the sphere of the activity increases. One of the last questions that was posed was, okay, where do we go from here? What can each of us do uh, to tangibly affect change? Uh, and so that gave actionable items for people 
and uh, everything that we do <laughs> is, you know, it takes one person to do something and, and, you know, have that ripple down effect. I think that people tend to assume that, th that an event like this is going to, to change the world into what we want it to be. And it's really just a part of the process of changing the world into what we want it to be. Like, the, like tomorrow, things will be better in the sense that connections will have been made and uh, people will know a little bit more about their neighbors and have more perspective on issues that matter. And so that's a good thing. And we need to be having a lot more of these types of conversations. And, and that's how things get better is from, you know, doing the work that needs to be done. And this is the type of work that needs to be done. If you change one person, 20 people, you don't impact anything. If you change a thousand people in a city as small as Decatur, you might. You change 10,000 and you definitely do. So that's the aim for this, right? The aim is a very organic, word of mouth, one-to-one -one sort of outreach. Um, it can be frustrating for people who are like, last year this happened, this is egregious, fix it. But what it can create is a community or communities, if it's multiplied, where people start to be more accepting of, more representative of the ideas and experiences of other people, which should lead to policy discussion, which should lead to executive differences. So. It's a fingers crossed moment right now. My work is actually about identifying what works and what helps people. And um, there's so much of a desire for people to move to a, to a what, an action, without really understanding why and how. So for me, the dinners helped establish a connection to the why and then the how before we get to a what. Um, the what's are helpful, which is usually policy, and policy needs to be informed by people's stories and lived experience. But how you do that is sitting down, going to where people are, and asking them, and listening, and truly believing what they say. And until we do that, we will always have policy that is out of step with where people really are. So I have to ask you, I know you've watched that clip several times. What bubbles up out of you when you watch those beautiful people in conversation? Um, when I think about that night and listening to people, it just really fills my heart with a lot of joy mm. um, and a lot of hope. Mm. And it reminds me of all the energy. I mean, that night, it was it was buzzing. People were buzzing and, and just really having a great time. Um, we had to get kicked out, you know, like we were still there at the restaurant. They're like, okay, we're closing, you know, okay, it's time to go. And uh, one of the things, unfortunately, with COVID is we haven't been able to have the dinners in person. We're doing them virtually. But I tell people all the time, like the dinner is supposed to be from six to eight. And I've never had a dinner that didn't go another couple of hours. Mm. You know? 
yes. where people, you know, people kind of linger and talk and make a connection. And, and really, when I think about this, um, it, it tells us that we are designed to do that. Like we are, that's, that's who we are. Yeah. Um, and you might not have all eight people all sitting together. You connect with one other person mm-hmm. and then they'll follow that up or they'll remember that person. I've had people I've met at a dinner two and three years later, remember the story, you know, or remember the performance that was done that night and, uh, and they keep coming back. So it's a, it's really just a beautiful thing. So I'm grateful that we had that opportunity and got to capture it on film. Yeah. And you know what I thought of? Uh, this is what I thought of. Wouldn't it have been something if someone like Nolan had been around capturing those dinners with Jesus? Oh, wow. And, and what I would love for our listeners to do right now, because when we premiere this, we have a live chat that's going and people are contributing. I would love for our listeners to just put in the chat box right now which dinner they wish they had a video of, oh, right? Yeah. Is it the prodigal son and the and the dinner mm-hmm. of you know coming home? Is it Zacchaeus? You know, mm-hmm. is it is it the woman that mm-hmm. that that the the religious leader wanted to throw out and Jesus insisted that she be kept? I wonder how many of us, rather than you know lining them up for a picture for the Last Supper, right? You know, mm-hmm. maybe we'd like a video of the Last Supper and angles yeah. and moments mm-hmm. and what silence felt like and what what questions sounded like because yeah. i think maybe what would help us is to realize those dinners weren't perfect either mm-hmm. you know you had a guy yeah. over here that thought that woman shouldn't be here and and, right. and and you had people questioning why jesus would have dinner with zacchaeus yeah. or with mm-hmm. matthew you you have yeah. an older brother that doesn't even like the fact that dad is having a big dinner for little brother. right Right. right. There's tension there. Right. Yes. And can you speak to us a little bit about just the anticipation, uh, the anticipation of normal tension yeah. when we have important conversations? Mm-hmm. When I did my dissertation research, that was one of the most uh, telling parts was people sharing how they got to witness seeing someone be confronted or be challenged wow. and still be able to you stay at the table and that that was what was beautiful to see the exchanges that people had and someone saying you know this is my story and this is how I've experienced that um I've been to dinners that were frustrating I mean I had a one of my very first dinners that I ever went to and a gentleman at the end of the table sat and said the entire time I just don't see it I just wow. don't see it. And um, but it led other people to connect with their neighbor, you know, who was next yep. to them yep. and to tell their stories and to witness and to eat. And that, you know, sometimes you don't leave feeling um, happy. You might feel a little challenged. Um, and that's why, again, I say it's about showing up. Mm. Um, and I think about that in terms of uh, showing up in our faith and showing up in our, like, it's more than just coming to church, right? Yeah, um, sure. And so the dinners are really another way to kind of live that out of like mm-hmm. showing up and being a witness, that that's like such an important part of it. Wow. I want to seize on that word, showing <laughs> up and being a witness. Mm-hmm. You know, you uh, made me think about something. Um, 
in regard to what we refer to as the Eucharist, the Lord's Mm -hmm. Supper, the sharing and the blessing, these different ways that we express the taking in of the body and blood of the Lord, right? Mm -hmm. And I think about that being at the center of the 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 whole idea of being yeah. followers of Christ. Mm-hmm. And yet when we see one of the most famous examples of discussions mm-hmm. in the New Testament, in the church, in the city of ancient Corinth, their dinner is in trouble. The the way that they're taking the meal is in trouble. And 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 yet rather than abandoning the meal, right? Mm-hmm. The Apostle Paul calls them back to the table right. to reconfigure the meal in mm-hmm. such a way that it brings about the blessing for which it was intended. Mm-hmm. And wow, when you said mm-hmm. showing up, it might not feel good, but you tied it to our witness. That yeah. just struck me. That's that's powerful, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, what would you uh, <laughs> say to people who think they have nothing to offer at a dinner like that. Mm. Um, I think we all have something to offer. And um, some of the most powerful experiences I've had at these dinners are the people who sat and just were intensely listening. Mm. Um, And then it wasn't necessarily them sharing their story. We had a gentleman at a dinner recently Um, who at the very end, that was what he hadn't spoken the whole time. And at the end, he said, you know, I'm going to walk away from here and I'm going to have conversations with my kids. I'm going to be talking to them. Um, We've had other people who said, you know, I'm going to go and pay attention to what's happening at my kid's school. I'm going to ask some questions a little bit differently. I'm going to show up again. Um, And that's been really powerful, like just to come Again, um, one of the things that we are often challenged with is that as people of color, um, we've often had these conversations within sort of a a cocoon in some ways. And it's very difficult to trust that you can sit with someone who might be different, um, that they're going to hear your story and not challenge it and kind of invalidate it. And it's one of the things that we try to work toward and why we have a facilitated person there at the dinner to help with that so that we can just say what I like to say with the dinner is that we're going to put some stuff on the table and this is one of the chances that you get to not eat everything on your plate like we're going to put stuff out there and some of it is just going to stay by anybody nobody's got their plate you know and I think we have to um, invite people and say that Come and participate at the level you're comfortable. Mm. You know, that's powerful. And giving people permission to show up right where they are, right? But to know that there are more uh, opportunities coming because, as Mm -hmm. you mentioned, (laughs) there are several of these things happening, right? And one of them is, uh, if I remember right, this Sunday evening. Mm-hmm. November 15th, yes. uh, Equitable Dinners is having a virtual dinner mm-hmm. uh, conversation. This is from five to seven, and that these are actually planned through April of 2021. Mm-hmm. 
And so people mm-hmm. can join in even this Sunday. They could just yes. go online, register. Is that correct? That's right. Wow. And, and dive right in. So I want to encourage our listeners <laughs> to say, hey, okay, now is your opportunity, right? And yeah. uh, especially for those of you that would be just like nervous about going to a complete stranger's place, try it online. This mm-hmm. could be your best next step. Right. It is really amazing that you can zoom in. Um, You'll be in a small room with another group of, you know, five or six people. And uh, what we're hearing from people is that it's a nice way to get involved Mm. from your own, you know, living room chair. Yeah, I love that. Well, (laughs) I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for joining us. Uh, We've been so excited about your work. And now uh, we've connected with you and we look forward to more connection in the future. Is there any last words that you'd like to share with our listeners just to encourage these courageous conversations? I always encourage people to just stay curious um, and to know that it's really okay to, to sort of lean in and thank you for listening. You know, that even this is like, is a gift. Yes, it is. And I want to echo that. I want to say thank you for sharing. I want to say to our listeners, thank you for listening. Thank you for contributing. Thank you for engaging in these conversations. And like that friend that Dr. Dietra mentioned, you might be moving from this podcast right into a conversation that you want to demonstrate curiosity and uh, the appreciation of listening. And you might want to share this podcast with someone and then say, hey, let's get a cup of coffee and let's talk about it. So thank you again for joining us for the Love First podcast. We ask you to like, share, and subscribe. And thank you again, Dr. Dietra, for joining us tonight. Thank you so much. Love first, I know.